0: We notice that politicians struggle to enact the things that they run on, that regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Now, I am in a privileged position to having listened to and talked with some practicing environmentalists, and I've learned a lot from them, and what I learn always sounds different from the public debate I hear around environmentalism. So today I'm joined by Rich Bowman, the Director of Policy for Michigan's chapter of the Nature Conservancy, a global environmental nonprofit working to create a world where people and nature can thrive. Rich, welcome.
1: Thanks, James. Glad to be with you today.
0: Who are the biggest polluters in Michigan?
1: Um, Well, you know, that's a a pretty tricky question to answer because the fact is um, I was having a conversation with some friends the other day and, you know, the Grand River behind my house in Grand Rapids is out of its banks because we're having our spring flood. And I suppose that... um, anything that you have too much of gets defined as pollution. Even too much water can be toxic and can um, kill people, and yet the right amount of it is necessary to life. And so I think that um, pollution's become a, a challenging thing to talk about because what we're really talking about is things that we've done as human beings that impair the quality of the natural environment or our ability to use it for the things we want to use it for. And so ultimately, you know, one of our great challenges is that people think of the environment as a thing, like trees and, and the atmosphere. And the environment actually is a bunch of interrelated processes and understanding how they work and then managing them within the limits of how they can work is the key to us successfully inhabiting this planet.
0: That's an interesting point. Uh, it's kind of like that's uh, the insight from toxicology, which is that uh, you know the dose makes the poison. Um, that's but right. Also, but also some some ideas like uh, this is a process, this is a system, there are a lot of interrelations that are going on. So yes, I guess let me... Add- and-
1: and not just the dose, but the the timing as well. You know, the fact is that, again, if you think of the environment as a process, then one of the things the environment does is um, is absorbs and processes everything that we put into it. And so some things that it's really hard for the environment to break down can become much more challenging and much more toxic than things that are relatively natural and the environment is used to breaking down and has the capacity to break down and assimilate.
0: So let me try and, uh, put a, take another tack on on this then or another Uh, way of of putting the front, uh, putting the question. What are some of the environmental problems you're working to address?
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the big ones is that, um, our (laughs) lifestyle, there's a lot of talk about, um, Climate change. Um, one of the underlying challenges is that a lot of our quality of life has been um, has been enhanced. Let's say by the fact that we've figured out how to use um, fossil fuels to do a lot of things for us, and fossil fuels have helped us do amazing things, um, but. The challenge is they're a little bit like spending money from your savings account and that we've taken a whole bunch of carbon that was in long-term storage, let's say, and released it back into the atmosphere. There isn't any more carbon or CO2 on the planet than there ever was. It's just in a different place and it then impacts how all of those processes on the planet and in the atmosphere work, how much energy is absorbed versus how much energy is reflected, how much um, water is evaporated and comes back down and when it happens. um, All of those things, again, are sort of the, the symptoms of a changing climate. But thinking about how we do things to help address those underlying systems, which is capturing atmospheric carbon and putting it back into some storm form of storage is what one of the things we're really working on. So we call it natural climate solutions. And what we're really trying to do is manage forests and grasslands and agricultural working lands in a way that in addition to producing all the things we want for life, they also are being managed in a way that they capture and store for longer periods of time more of that atmospheric carbon and help us slow down the rate of change of carbon in the atmosphere.
0: How do you manage grasslands and forests to do that?
1: Um, Mostly it's, it's a twofold process. One is by extending the length of time that we leave things to grow. So harvesting them when they're larger, harvesting them a little more selectively. So one of the things that we've done a lot of with um, forestry is we've made it very efficient by creating some industrial processes. And those processes rely on species being all about the same age, being more of the high economic value species. They're all very good things, but they actually reduce they increase some of our other risks. So, for instance, we have a forest in the Upper Peninsula, about 6,000 acres, our two-hearted forest reserve. It's been managed for 100 years for um, sugar maple or hard maple, a very high-value tree. Um, what managed for means that the managers over the years have tried to eliminate all of the other species of trees that are growing there. And they've tried to harvest the trees so that they could get the remaining trees to all be about the same age. And that makes it hugely efficient when you go to harvest because you just go in once every 20 or 30 years and cut everything. The challenge with that is, is multifold though. The first one is that what if our next emerald ash borer is the maple ash borer that for, or, What if it's even a native pest like the spruce budworm, which attacks trees at a particular age in their life cycle? All of those forests that were managed to maximize economic value now don't have much economic value. So can we diversify the age of the trees, the species mix, all of those things in the forest to hedge against those risks like invasive species or diseases and also by doing that if we change that management a little bit we can increase the amount of um, trees there are that are growing to a larger size and that increases the amount of carbon we store so we don't want to quit harvesting trees we just want to harvest them differently The second thing that comes into play there is what you do with those wood products. Because when you cut down a tree, it's basically a big chunk of carbon. And if you put that into long-lived products like buildings and furniture and cabinets and things like that, that carbon stays stored not just for the length of time that the tree was growing, but for the length of time that we're using that. Um, building or using that furniture or using those cabinets. those All of those things are basically all made from naturally captured and stored carbon in the form of wood. Um, if we make it into toilet paper, which is a very necessary product, um, that doesn't stick around very long before it's ultimately utilized. But it um, ultimately, there are a number of ways without necessarily changing our lives a lot, that we can um, actually use these working systems to help us address climate change. And our scientists at the Nature Conservancy did an analysis, and they can, and they believe that we can meet up to 30% of the reductions we need to meet some of the targets that the climate change scientists are talking about through change management and these natural climate solutions. So what you're saying is that
0: reclaimed uh, or rest, uh, reclaimed wood good for the environment? Um,
1: Absolutely, yeah. Even better than new wood that you have to cut down.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that's. Uh, but what you said brings up another thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is that the the logging industry has this reputation as the villain for environmentalism, and what I've heard or heard from you is that actually we try to exploit the value that we that timber has. For environmental gains, um, yeah. how 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 does the logging industry work, and how do they help the environment?
1: Well, you know the, the it. One of the things about what I just described on what we're trying to do on the Nature Conservancy's forests is we're trying to find ways to apply commercial scale management practices to achieve a better environmental outcome. One of the things that we have to remember about many of the industries that are close to our base natural resources like farming and forestry is that they are pretty thin margin industries from a business point of view. And frankly, there are a lot of other places in the world where labor is cheaper and, um, and land is cheaper. And so our forest folks in the forest products industry, our loggers and our, um, mill operators have to compete with all of those other places and still compete within the environment where they, the economic environment where they exist as far as wages that they have to pay and prices that they have to pay for raw materials and their inputs. And so the folks who are in businesses like logging and trucking and milling are always trying to find a way to save money. And sometimes the ways that we save money are trying to work faster, harvest more, just op- try to optimize your investment, all of your capital investments and in equipment and machinery. And what we're trying to do is say, while that's a way to manage. It creates other unanticipated risks and consequences. And we're trying to offer some alternative management that allows those things to be better. You know, in the places where we have active carbon markets now, there are really two things that a forest landowner can get paid for. One is avoided forest de- for avoided deforestation, basically agreeing not to cut down forests so that you maintain its carbon value. But the other one, which we're heavily involved in, is something called improved forest management standards, where basically you are taking your current management approach, you're agreeing to change the management approach, which increases the amount of carbon sequestration in that forest and that delta between what you're doing now and what you agreed to do is the amount of carbon that you have available to market as an offset.
0: So this is kind of uh, an interesting, um, change, uh, Mm -hmm. in, in the way that, um, that uh, logging has done? Because, I mean, in the 19th century, logging changed the entire shape of Michigan. And we did this without much concern for the environment or any of the environmental consequences of that activity. And now it's kind of being lauded for sustainability and improved uh, and improved economic or improved environmental protections. How did this change so much?
1: Um, you know, some of it is... Um, I often, Michigan has a large state forest system, public forest system, 4.1 million acres. Um, There are always lots of debates about public land versus private land, but the history of that forest system I find to be interesting because from the late 19th into the early 20th century, the policy position of the state of Michigan was that we didn't want public lands. We wanted all of the land in private ownership because that was how we generated economic activity and that was how we generated revenue for government. But there were folks who took advantage of our policy structure at that point in time. And basically what happened is you could buy land very inexpensively through the public land offices, buy huge acreages, go out, see if there was anything that was there that was worth harvesting, get it harvested. And then, um, you know, you have a window of about five years from the time you buy a piece of property that you can get away with not paying your property taxes before the government takes it back. And we had a period of time in the late 19th and early 20th century where the land office in Michigan sold something like 40 million acres of land. And the reason that's important is that the entire state of Michigan is only about 36 million acres. And what they were doing was basically selling the same five or six million acres over and over again, except the people who were buying it never paid for it or never paid the taxes. They just said, yeah, I'll take it. They went out to look and see if there was anything that they could exploit from the land and then they let it go back. And as a result, the Michigan legislature was finally forced to say, this policy doesn't work. And so we're going to take this land into public ownership. We're going to reforest it because right now it's both an environmental wasteland and an economic disaster. And we won't be successful without trying something different. And today, the state forest system generates every year on the plus side of $50 million in revenue to the Forest Development Fund of the state of Michigan from sold timber. It really is the linchpin of our timber products industry. And it provides recreational opportunities. It provides all of the things that we love about the forests up north. And you know, lots of people talk about the the wonderful primeval forests of Michigan, and when I look at them, I see probably one of the more successful brownfield redevelopment projects in the history of the state.
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that um, is underappreciated, is that the state of Michigan owns and operates just a massive amount of land, and it does it for the benefit of the people of Michigan. This is your forest. They're trying to figure out the best ways to use this to serve the public. Uh, try and get engaged in this because there's a lot of cool things you can do in state parks. Uh, yes. It's not just hunting, fishing, and camping either.
1: Yes. You know, one of the, I think one of the little known statistics is um, the Michigan Department of Natural Resources um, manages on our behalf and state owns about 4.6 million acres of state land. 4.1 million of that we got because nobody wanted to pay for it. That's interesting. Is that really how
0: we wound up with all these state parks? I thought they were gifts, and uh, some um,
1: of them were gifts. Some of them were are things that we bought using mechanisms like the Natural Resources Trust Fund and Hunter and Fisherman Fisherperson dollars over the years. But a lot of them were things that ultimately they had tax reverted so many times that we just took them back. There was an interesting publication about this history that was put out in the late 1930s by the Extension Service. And the title of the publication was The Land That Nobody Wanted. That's very interesting. Even if if you go back to the original surveys of Michigan in the early 19th century done by um, Tiffin and others, you know, when they were first surveying Michigan, they were surveying areas of it as potential bonus payments to soldiers from the War of 1812. And Tiffin's report back said, you know, this land is terrible. You don't want to give this as a bonus. That's, that's like insulting our soldiers. And Michigan really is the place that it is today, the beautiful natural environment that it is today, because a lot of people who care about it have made deliberate management decisions to make it that way.
0: All right. So we've talked a lot about forest management. What are some other uh, uh, problems that you're working on?
1: You know, we've had uh, almost 20 year history now of working with farmers and trying to, again, within the constraints of their businesses that they're all running helping them look at different ways to um, farm that are good for their bottom line and better for their um, pocketbook. You know, one of the ones that we're looking at is there's a specialty crop that's grown in the Saginaw Valley, sugar beets. And um, one of the things about growing sugar beets is beet seeds are a really tiny little seed, like a mustard seed. And so in order to plant them and get good, germination and good growth, the farmers have always felt like they had to really aggressively till the soil to plow it up and then work it down till it was a very fine seedbed so those little seeds would germinate and grow. And that's um, a, certainly an acceptable and successful cultural practice, but it tends to leave the soil bare for a relatively long period of time. And the Early spring and subject to a lot of erosion, which is not good for that soil. There's a practice called strip tillage where instead of tilling the whole field, you only till a little narrow six inch wide strip where you're going to actually plant the seeds and you leave a cover crop on the rest of the soil. And farmers have um, used strip tillage successfully all over the country, but Sugar beet farmers have been concerned about whether or not strip tillage would work with sugar beets. And part of the challenge becomes a strip tillage machine is a quarter of a million dollar investment for a farmer. So if you buy it, you want to be able to use it on all of your crops, not just some of them. And so we actually have a program that we're doing in cooperation with Michigan Sugar and with some sugar beet farmers where we're... Helping them with the cost of a strip tillage machine in exchange for them planting their beets using strip tillage, because we know that if we can get help them be successful doing that on sugar beets, they'll also do it on all of their other crops. And so, even though we might only do this on six or 7,000 acres of sugar beets, the multiplier effect from all those other crops would be strip tillage on potentially 30 or 40,000 acres, which then becomes a big deal.
0: Mm-hmm. There are many different conceptions of environmentalism. What is yours?
1: So I told a group I was speaking to a couple of weeks ago that I'm not an environmentalist, that I'm a conservationist, and which of course begs the, the, the answer of what the difference is. And I said, the difference between an environmentalist and a conservationist is an environmentalist is a conservationist is an environmentalist with a chainsaw that isn't afraid to use it. I, I Again, there is a, a risk with, there's a risk to putting nature um, on a pedestal. And for a long time, a lot of folks have believed that nature's problem was human beings, and it often can be. Human beings making not thoughtful choices related to the environment, like the 19th century logging boom in Michigan, can have really bad effects for the environment. But human beings are part of the environment. And so, like you shared in the introduction at the Nature Conservancy, we're really trying to move forward on a on a proposition where nature and people thrive and how do we interact with the environment so that we get all of the benefits and all of the things that are necessary for us to live our lives without degrading it to the point where it can no longer provide those functions.
0: Uh, When I was reading on uh, some of your work, and on your website, one of the things that you emphasize is the importance of biodiversity as something that you're trying to protect and preserve. Why is that a goal?
1: You know, the big there are a couple reasons. Um, one is that we um, it's a it's a conservative principle that's based upon the idea that we don't know what we don't know, and so we tend to look at things in the environment from the lens of whether or not they have some economic or commercial value to human beings that we can make use of and exploit. And that's a really important thing. But there are some um, things in the environment that because we don't understand how they work, just because we don't understand their function or how they work, doesn't mean we won't eventually understand their function or how they work. And it's, um, I've heard it called the watchmaker's dilemma, where you want to always make sure you save all of the parts because you never necessarily know what part you might need that you don't need right now. The second thing is that um, diversity is the, the way we create resilience, and you know, resilience has become a very popular word lately. I think resilience is su- replacing sustainability. But even if we did nothing, the world constantly changes and evolves. And just like we've experienced with um, COVID in the last few years, or other diseases, you know, there are always new diseases emerging. There are always new mutations emerging. And diversity often means that something, you know, one of the ways that we initially combated COVID was by creating social distancing. Well, diversity is what creates social distancing in nature, because if you have a large area that's all one plant or one animal and the disease attacks there, it's going to spread rapidly and it's going to wipe them out. If you have lots of variability which nature normally has naturally in the species and their ages and their distribution even when a new disease emerges it becomes much harder for it to spread and so we really like to think of it in terms of creating that creating a more resilient natural system is a way of managing risk and That's really a big part of what, when we're working with farmers and loggers and other folks, they're constantly managing the risk of what the weather's going to be, what the markets are going to be like, what labor availability there's going to be. All of those things are risks. And some of those things we can address through having a healthy, natural environment.
0: Why do you let your grasslands and forests on
1: fire? You know, um, before we, um, settled these things, when there weren't a lot of humans around, there were, um, some, um, there were a certain number of naturally occurring fires. Um, it's, and there are certain species that are adapted to fire and they frankly don't even regrow very well if there is a periodic fire. Um, what. We are trying to do, again, in managing the environment is you don't want to set everything on fire, but to maintain an assortment of diversity, you have to do a little bit of selective fire or you have to do something to emulate what would happen with fire. Or, you know, a a more common one here in Michigan is that it was very natural to have um, forested systems disrupted by um, weather events, by what we call wind throw, where trees in an area would get blown down. We um, we need to make sure in order to keep these systems healthy and functioning, that if we can't apply the natural process of windthrow or fire because it interferes with other social values, like we don't want to burn our houses down, then we need to do things like cut clear-cut patches or things like that to emulate what would have happened if that natural event had occurred so that those systems have an opportunity to regenerate too. How can people support your work? You know, the best thing to do is go to www.nature.org. You can learn more about our work there. There are always opportunities to donate, and we appreciate that support. We are. Um, completely funded by the contributions of people who believe in our mission and other um, foundations and organizations who believe in our mission. And so that support is deeply appreciated and makes it possible for us to enjoy the success that we enjoy.
0: Rich, thank you for coming on and helping us understand what's within the Overton
1: window. Great. Thank you, James. It was great to be with you today.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinac.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.